Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Austin, you're tanking the market. <laughs> Should I save it? Should I just tell my buddies at the Bank of Canada to start decreasing rates? <laughs> yeah, just tell them, bro. We're in a fucking recession. What else do they want, man? They want to... Well, apparently, the city of Windsor wants our property. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about that? I thought we were keeping quiet about that for a bit. <laughs> I think it's okay for us to to chat on a on a high level of what's going on. One of our properties that they don't listen to the podcast, the city of Windsor, hopefully not. <laughs> but one of our properties that we have in Windsor, the city is looking to purchase it for their bridge project. Now I don't remember if they were trying to build some sort of tourist uh center. Yeah, like some some travel center or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you know, when you go and you pick up pamphlets, you can ask questions, so on and so forth before traveling around the city. I think it's one of those. And when Austin says purchase, they're basically going to expropriate it. Like the first email from the lawyer was, hey, look, we're representing the city. We're very, or some division of the city. We're very interested in your property. We'd love to purchase it from you. And then at the bottom of that, like letter that he sent us, it was like, and just so you know, we do have like the right granted to us by like the federal government or something like that to like expropriate this property. <laughs> it was like, well, okay, this is going to be a great negotiation then. But yeah. why don't you tell them about the process there, man? Um, I don't think we want to go too deep into it right now, just because we're still in the negotiation stages back and forth. Um, yeah, but yeah. it is it is very interesting. I mean, honestly, like this is one of the properties that we wanted to hold for an extremely long time mm -hmm. because it is like literally like when I say like a, a minute walk to the uni, maybe less than a How minute. How many walk. beds is it? Ten beds? Ten beds, right? Like it's three. No. Five on the main, the bottom unit and then four upstairs, right? Nine beds? Yeah, it's nine beds, yeah. three baths, um, newly renovated and like a 30 second walk to the university. So it doesn't really get more prime than this location and houses barely sell. But uh, I mean, with what's going on, our situation we're in, it seems like we're forced. We're not motivated sellers. So at least there's that. But we'll we'll keep you guys updated as negotiation continues on. I'm pretty sure that it won't go on for too, too much longer. And if the city listens, we will take this to court again. Okay? Yes, we will. There was, well, we're public with, I don't even know if we can take it. <laughs> Other thing that I wanted to talk about on, on my end of things, um, recently placed a tenant in one of my buildings and the tenant is supposed to be paying for hydro and for gas and the water comes from a well. So there's really no water bill, but they're not paying for hydro and gas now. And the reason being is because this was four units that was turned into three units. Okay. Yeah. The owners were living in it. So they wanted all bigger units. And as a result of that, one didn't click in my mind. And there was also, sorry, there's also three meters now, right? So one of the meters is kind of blocked out, right? Oh, like yeah, the, okay. Okay. it's not available. There's no electricity there. Right. And so basically what we found is, is that, not all the wiring was changed as well. So some, if you turn off the breaker panel in one unit, you're going to see some lights turn off in the other unit, right? Mm. Um, so then now the electrical, like it's it's really hard to measure which unit is using how much electrical. Yeah. 
and that's fine. We're running into trouble there. So we're thinking about fixing the electrical and, and accurately splitting off the meters, which is going to cost about 10000 Um, But the other thing is now they're refusing to pay for electrical as well as for gas as well. So there's a propane tank that we fill up whenever like gas gets low. And the primary heating is for one of the units, but there are some vents as well in the other unit. And the owner was originally okay with it. They're like, yeah, it's fine. Like, I'll pay for it, all of it. Not the owner, sorry, the tenant. And now they're going back on that. It's, it's a messy situation. And they paid us 50% of our rent. They're causing trouble. I just got off the phone with them. I'm going to get on the phone with them later at 8 p.m. as well. But it is, uh, it's a stressful, stressful situation. I guess that's one learning lesson for me is like, when you're looking at conversions, like even back, like someone turning it from a four unit to three unit, you got to double check to see if the utilities were accounted for, right? Like if they're still separated and they still tracked accordingly to each unit, mm. right? So um, not fun, not fun. <laughs> Did you guys like move walls and stuff as part of your rentals? Like is it po- possible? No, that, we like... didn't do anything. We didn't, oh, we just shit. like purchased it, paint and got it going. And the owner like was, he was an older gentleman, but he knew what he was doing. Like yeah. He did waterproofing. He's he's a handyman. So I thought like the assumption would be like he did everything correctly, which he did everything correctly except for electrical. That didn't matter because yeah. when he was renting it out, it was all inclusive and he lived in one of the units, right? So I guess you could just take it back to all inclusive. Yeah, but like this is the property on 10 acres. So it's on a yeah, rural yeah. area. So the delivery charge for electrical is high. And now that the tenants know that, like they're like, oh, uh, like we prefer not, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's also part of it. They want to kind of go back on it after seeing what the utility bills actually is. And if we're not able to push it to them or get a reasonable all-inclusive, then the property is going to be cash flow negative. It's not a great situation to be in, but uh, trying to figure it out. This is the fun in investing. What's going on in your end? Are you any updates? It's recession, man. What's going on in the Uh, U.S., Austin? It's not identified as a recession. (laughs) 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 Although it is a recession. It's It's not being identified as one. Um, yeah, there was a 75 basis point increase on, on, it was Wednesday, not Wednesday, it was Tuesday. Thursday. Yeah. Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. 75 basis points. Um, the stock market rallied after crypto market rallied because they kind of said that they're not really looking to do any more hikes, right? No, no, they are still going to be doing hikes, but so a lot of their hikes were front loaded because they're like, oh shit, inflation's like out of control. Um, we need to just do a ton of fucking hikes. So they hiked, 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 hiked. Mm. I wouldn't say more than necessary, but very aggressively and at a quick pace. But now Powell is saying that any future hikes is based on data, whatever that means. It's based on, I, I think he means current data. So they're not like, if they don't need to hike rates, they won't. Realistically speaking, they're going to need to anyways. Because he also threw in there that like if they need to hike rates again, they very much will still continue to hike rates. But now they're going to focus on data. And people read that as a positive sign, I guess. So we're seeing a bit of... I think the market route. was also forecasting in like a, a 1% hike, no? Like it wasn't that kind of rumor to potentially happen as well in July. And then they ended up doing a 0.75, which arguably might not be as bad, right? The, the feds were going to do 1% again? I thought yeah, it was, was it? 75. The bond market okay, said 75. But either way, know. like we still have a couple more by the end of the year. My trigger rate, um, <laughs> it's gonna hit next month. I was sitting down and calculating. So, for those who don't know what trigger it is, my, why don't you give it like a brief sort of explanation? Yeah. So, a lot of us as investors, we have our mortgages with Scotia, right? Scotia is true variable. So, as your interest rates go up, your your payments will go up. As your interest rates go down, your payments will go down as well. The benefit is, I guess, you never really have to pre-qualify for another five years. You can just kind of hold on to your mortgage as it is, right? 
a bank like TD RBC, which is what Austin has right now on his on his primary CIBC as well. CIBC as well, yeah. So they offer what's called like a static rate mortgage, right? So a static rate mortgage just means as interest rates go up, your payment will stay the same, but the breakdown of your payment between principal and interest will fluctuate, right? So usually there's some wording in there that kind of alleviates to a trigger rate, right? And a trigger rate is essentially at it's a rate at which your interest payments alone, like the interest component of your mortgage payments will exceed the monthly payment that you're making, right? So if you're paying $2,000 a month, it starts off thousand to interest, thousand to principal. And then after certain hikes, it goes $2,000 towards interest, $0 towards principal. And that's the amortization. (laughs) (laughs) Interest only loans, your private loans, but uh, that might kind of be where Austin's at right now. But then if there's one more hike, then you get to your interest expenses, 2,500 or something like that a month. Right. And your payment is only 2000. That's where now the bank kind of gives you three options. Right. I I guess you want to talk about that, Austin. Yeah. So specifically speaking, we're talking about variable. Um, If you're in Scotia, Mm, that's fine. But most people are with other banks as well, and they have the sort of close payment uh, where it doesn't change. Yeah, it's different for every single bank. So I was speaking to my buddy who has his uh, uh, mortgage at CIBC. And so how CIBC does is once you hit the trigger rate, they're re-amortized right away back to 30 years or whatever the, the loan outs, 29 years, 28 years, whatever you put the amortization at they re-amortize and recalculate the payment. So your payment goes up significantly and to the current interest rate, right? So if it's like 4%, they're going to calculate 4%. Uh, if it's like 29 years left for amortization, 29 years. And so mm-hmm. you can imagine that mortgage payment goes up drastically. For me, I'm using RBC for my primary res. Uh, my interest rate was 1.3% variable when I got it. Now, when I checked RBC, it's 3.55%, I want to say. And my trigger rate, it's on the mortgage document. So you know when you sign with the lawyer, the actual mortgage document? I asked yeah. my lawyer for that. And it's, it's, it flat out states what the trigger rate is. <laughs> the trigger rate is 3.955. So that's definitely the next hike, right? Because right now it's 3.55 for me, for my okay, variable. Yeah, yeah. So the next hike is going to be my trigger. And how RBC does it is, is that RBC is weird. They go up by $2 increments on your payment. So RBC is okay with you paying like $1 or $2 principal and the rest going to interest. But when the term expires, like when your five-year or four-year term comes to an end, they re-amortize it on a 25 or 30 year amortization, like whatever the outstanding is to get it back on track, if you know what I mean. But CIBC does it as soon as your trigger rate hits, right? Hold on, RBC so RBC is not going to, yeah, they're not going to make your monthly payments go higher? They're going to make it go higher, but they only do it by $2 increments. What? Yeah, yeah. They're okay. <laughs> $2 increment. Yeah, so they're okay with leaving your amortization as 55, 60, 70 years until, the, until your term ends. From what I was reading on CIBC, because I was reading my buddy CIBC mortgage document to see if it was the same. CIBC, when the trigger is hit, they recalculate it there and then, which is honestly probably like the more prudent and better option. Yeah. So you're not kicking the can further down. Yeah, right? yeah. So basically your interest payments that are in excess of the payments you're making right now. So if your interest expense is $2,500 and you're paying $2,000 a month right now, that $500 a month is basically going to get added on to the principal that you owe. That's not true. So they're not going to let your interest portion oh, exceed your payment. Okay, okay. They'll, yeah. they, they, they'll increase by $2 increments until basically you're able to pay off your interest. Plus, I don't know, a little bit of principal. That's my understanding. Oh, okay. But RBC doesn't give a shit if your amortization is like 70 years, right? Until, fuck, they, eh? until they reach the end of the term. 
And when you reach the yeah, end of the yeah. term, your payments are going to be like insanity, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. my game plan is just to make a lump sum payment or to buy myself, let RBC know, like, I'm going to pay at like the 4% interest rate or like 4.5, right? To catch yeah, up on yeah. those on those payments. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm my mortgage payment times. when I calculate it. So my mortgage payment's 1600 now. It's going to go up to 2300 or 2400 700 Yeah, I, but Maybe that is a lot. Yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah, from a percentage yeah. point of view, my mortgage yeah. payment—that's a big increase, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, frugality the next the next couple of months. <laughs> Anyways, our preamble has went on so so long, so we'll jump into today's podcast. We have a fantastic episode today. We have Dylan McLaughlin. Dylan is one of those OG young investors of the financial independent retire early movement, the fire movement. He's actually a huge inspiration for Mayu and I when we both got started investing uh, around our generation of, of real estate investors. He was able to retire in his mid-20s from his full-time job, and he owns a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's prudent and conservative in his investing, but he's continuing to grow his portfolio this episode, you're going to learn a ton. We're going to talk about Dylan's journey. We're also going to talk about current economic environment and how that's impacting Dylan's investing going forward. And also Dylan's goals, which are extremely ambitious. And it's something that is is really, it puts a battery in my back and makes me think maybe my goals aren't ambitious enough. So make sure to tune in and like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast. We're jumping into this episode right now. Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest, one of the OGs of actually getting started <laughs> in real estate very early at a young age, right? Because now, nowadays, it seems like everyone's getting started at a young age, but we're joined with Dylan McLaughlin. Dylan, how's everything going, man? Yeah, everything's going good. Thanks for the, the kind words. I appreciate it. Definitely OG. I think I saw you on Matt's channel like a long time ago. I don't even remember. Um, I feel like I wasn't even like really that deep in the real estate investing side and Dylan was already like scaling up pretty fast. But Obviously, myself and Austin know your backstory a little bit, but for our, our listeners that might not know you, uh, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick background on how you got started in real estate and really your journey? For sure, I'd love to. So basically, I ended up getting started almost 10 years ago. So it's kind of almost been a decade in the game, in the trenches investing. And uh, basically, I was kind of coming into my 20s. I, at the time, was living at home. I'd always been very entrepreneurial. You know, I'd done previous things, flipping websites, doing the Google AdSense, you know, reading four-hour work week, all, all these kind of great things. So the, the ideation was always spinning. And um, I needed to move out. I ended up running numbers on rental properties and kind of stumbling into house hacking. I remember before I got into it, I even, uh, like a lot of people right now seem in such a rush to get into things and just want to go so crazy. But there is a big learning process to get into real estate to get into any industry or market. And so I remember before um, I was working in construction at the time as an electrician and we drive out uh, up north to job sites. And I would literally, I had like this massive library book bag and I'd rent like 10 library books and just scan through them just to teach myself and get into things. So anyways, ended up buying my first property. Um, it was a student rental house hack that I lived in and rented out. It was very profitable. Things were super great. It lined up very well with the lifestyle. And so at that point, I was like, yeah, I just, I got to double down on this. I got to keep getting into it more and more. And so anyways, ended up after the first one, took a little bit longer to find the next one. Now I knew what I was looking for. I knew what a really good deal could be. And I knew how to kind of like, you know, play the game a little bit better and build some of that team. And so, yeah, things kind of just sprouted out from there. I'll tie it in as well, because uh, I, I am very well known for, you know, being affiliated with uh, a bunch of other really big super connectors in the real estate space, which has been very fortunate. And so 
yeah, early on, I realized I had to uh, to meet some people as well in the network. I remember even reading it. There's a great book by Keith Ferrazzi called Never Eat Alone. And I remember being on a ski trip and reading that and being like, hey, I really got to, you know, build a tribe or, or network some people that are killing in the real estate game as well. And so actually it was like shortly thereafter, I ended up uh, linking up with Matt McKeever and uh, we ended up, you know, having coffee together, chatting. And I remember this is early on in my journey as well. And this is early on in his journey. I ended up, it was like my second property. And, and a lot of people in my life that weren't in the game so much were kind of being naysayers about the property. Oh, it's, it's too rough. This thing's going to be a, a huge headache. It's too much to fix up. And I remember having him over, uh, Matt McKeever, he took a look at it and he was like, man, awesome deal. This is a great property. This is going to be a, a home run. And so, you know, that that speaks to volumes of having people that know what they're doing and, and building that up to build your confidence up as well. And so, yeah, that was kind of the, the really big, uh, that's how I really got a, a nice start in things. And then through then it was just kind of doubling up doing more deals, getting more creative with deals, more adventurous, you know, adding on different little strategies as well. Like we all start with the bread and butter, you know, the, the burr strategy, not even burr. We all start like, you know, buy and hold, just investing in assets. Then you start burring, which is where you learn about creative financing and different strategies around that. Then potentially you learn about getting better deals, how to negotiate more, how to structure things differently. And so, yeah, that's kind of been uh, the, the process for the past decade. Awesome. A ton to unpack there. I want to start with the humble beginnings with your first property when you got into that student rental house hack. Uh, what age did you purchase the property? How did you go about financing it given that it was a student rental or is it like, I guess, since you were living there, wasn't as much of an issue. And uh, what were kind of the numbers like for that property as well? Exactly. Yeah. So that one, I was around 20 years old when I bought it. I think, yeah, I had it maybe negotiated. I was just... Yeah, it's 20. I was around 20. I think maybe I might have been 19 when, no, I, I might have been 20 when I closed on it and then turning 21. I you believe. You house hacking as a student. So you're a student yeah. as well. Wait, did you even have income? <laughs> yeah. So actually, so um, I guess then going back even before then, I graduated high school, went into electrical engineering technology over at Fanshawe, and I did an accelerated course. So I was done in two years. And then with the accelerated course too, I had a co-op. So I ended up working construction as an electrician very quickly. I was working like 80 hour work weeks. So I've always been working. I've always saved, you know, I used to lifeguard um, in summers, work part-time jobs. I've always been super frugal. So I had a really sizable down payment, an adequate down payment, right? Back 10 years ago, property prices were much cheaper. So to kind of give you some of the numbers on that property, there was uh, $215,000 was the purchase price. It was a kind of single family house with like a little, with the ability to add in like a secondary dwelling unit in the downstairs, kind of the, the two separate units. So I ended up purchasing that. Um, I, I had enough down payment to do a 20% down deal for my first deal. And then once again, I had the employment piece as a, as I was an apprentice electrician at the time, I was still going through my apprenticeship, but the salary is pretty good, very good wages. And so, yeah, I was able to get into that one. Um, did just a small amount of renovation, basically chipped away at it myself, um, you know, paint, carpets, kitchen upgrades, things like that. And um, actually, I just sold that property a year ago. And I, if I can divulge some of the numbers, and I, I, I want to divulge these numbers, I don't yeah. I don't want to say this to brag. Uh, a lot of us have been very lucky over the past 10 years with real estate, but this was kind of a mind-blowing. So, so anyways... I bought that property for, like I said, um, around 215,000. I maybe put, you know, $30,000 of renovations over the, the entire duration of the property, right? And I did a lot of things myself. I stayed very frugal. So let's say I may be into the property for $250,000. I ended up holding that property for 10 years. And throughout that entire time, um, I didn't mention the, the cash flow numbers, the rent numbers. 
So I rented it out at about, you know, 450 to 500 per bedroom, but then I'd get like longer term leases for the units. So I, I was making around $1,000 a month cash flow on that property pretty consistently, give or take, probably even more than that. And then also if you count the mortgage pay down, but just looking at cash flow, I remember I was just kind of around $1,000 a month clean cash flow on that property. And then I ended up selling it kind of, I ended up really lucky it out and selling it kind of at the peak of the market for $750,000. And so, (laughs) and yeah, which is a big win. And I don't say it to brag because a lot of people have some really big wins over this past year, you know, but what I do say that was very crazy. This was the mind blowing piece for me is that I owned this property for 10 years and ended up selling it for, you know, $500,000 over $500,000 profit over those 10 years. So if you divide that out, that's $50,000 per year. And then I was making $1,000 a month cash flow. So that's another like $12,000. Let's add on the mortgage pay down, you know, $15,000. So this one property alone, my first property, which wasn't even the best deal, like it was probably, it was my first deal. So it wasn't even like a great deal. It was a very good deal, but I was making like 70 or $75,000 a year just off one property, which is completely mind blowing. You know, there's a bit of luck involved with that too. I was speaking with a friend about this and he's like, yeah, but like, you know, a vast majority of that appreciation happened within the last three years, which is true. But it just goes to show how the power of like, when you're doing entrepreneurial things, when you're investing, the wins that you get are crazy. Like there's nobody that's just going to luck out and have a job that passively pays them an entire salary for a decade. Right. So yeah, I just wanted to share that story. It also shows the value of just ultimately long-term buy and hold, right? Like you, you held that thing for 10 years. If you had sold that at five years, you wouldn't be sharing the story with us today. And so that shows ultimately the value of that. So you started off in that house hacking situation. How did your investing strategy evolve? And, you know, very cognizant that it was a different time, different prices and stuff like that. But I ultimately, I think a lot of the principles still kind of hold true to today. We're just talking about different dollar signs, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're just such bread and butter strategies, right? House hacking, you can almost never go wrong. There's so many benefits and even... Nowadays, there's other ways to increase the income on that, you know, medium term rentals that people are doing furnished rentals or Airbnb, you know, to increase that cash flow. But yeah, that was pretty much it. So that was my first one. And then I pretty much kind of continued that strategy going on. I just knew what to look for that could be even more profitable ways to increase the profit. And then same kind of thing. I utilized that ability that I could live in properties, renovate them. So shortly thereafter, I bought another property that I I basically did the same kind of strategy, although this one required much more extensive renovation. So I got a much better deal. It was actually a bank sale. So the property was in complete shambles and just put much more work, much more renovation into that one. So my first one was just very easy paint carpet things that could be done quickly. The second one was much more extensive renovations, but that one, because that there was multiple units, I was able to keep the property rented and cash flowing while I was renovating. Um, and then I was living in a unit as well. And so there's ways to subsidize there. Then my next deal after that, kind of trying to give you guys a linear progression of how I learned and if it possibly benefits a beginner getting into it as well. Then the second one had to do very, that was like a full gut, you know, like duplex conversion kind of project. And so that one much more capital intensive. That one I did, I wasn't able to live in at certain points because things had to be ripped out and gutted. So, you know, at that point, leveraging the house hack strategy or leveraging the ability to live in my unit became less advantageous. Because at that point, you know, it's too much headache living in a project and and having your life disrupted. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's nice being away from it. So you have that quiet time to focus. So that's where I started having capital around deals. Deal number three, four, five is when I really had to start leveraging the capital more, bringing on more teams. I'm hiring people to do it. Like started out on the first deal, doing everything myself. Then the second deal, I would, you know, contract out little guys here and there. 
third deal, I was GCing it. I had guys that were like hand, general handymen that would kind of do everything. And then with the additional contractors. And then beyond that, now I'm more at the point where I'm hiring a GC on my jobs or guys are giving me full quotes to do a full job. And I'm kind of worrying about it less. So mm -hmm. that's kind of been that linear progress. Yeah. So I think the good thing with that is, is that a lot of investors, they want to hire things out immediately, which there isn't anything like I understand the thought process of that, right? Like if it's not worth your time, you hire it out. But at the same time, you need to know who you're hiring it out to. And the best way to find someone who's qualified for the job is knowing how to do at least parts of the job yourself, right? So that's kind of the progress that you went through. You started learning how to GC, you subcontracted different employees and, and you realize some of the, probably the pitfalls of some contract workers. So when you go and hire a GC, you can ask them the questions that are really meaningful that a lot of like regular investors, like even myself, I'm probably not the perfect guy to interview a GC, just to be frank with you. A lot of what I do is trial and error, which isn't the best approach, but by kind of your approach of learning yourself before hiring it out, I think there's something to be said for that as well, that a lot of investors overlook. And that, I guess, goes to the frugality parts as well when you were starting off. Um, so what kind of deals were you looking for in particular throughout your journey? Do you have any specialty? Did you have a niche? Was it student rentals, multifamilies, or were you just going to anything that was the deal? Yeah. So early on, I had acquired some student rentals way back in the day. And it wasn't necessarily so much because that was my niche or because that was something I, I specifically focused on. Back at that point in the market, the student rentals paid quite more of a premium compared to multifamily and just renting by the units. And I've talked to other investors about this as well. And really, sometimes the, the difference between what a bachelor unit's renting for, a one-bedroom unit is renting for, and a two-bedroom unit is renting for, is there's a much larger spread between what maybe individual bedrooms can rent for, because there's usually kind of a good price for bedrooms. Um, I have moved away from that now because that's the problem with the student rentals, the rooming houses, that kind of stuff. There is a lot more management for it. So it can be a bit of a headache there, as well as like you mentioned earlier, Austin, the, the financing and some of the other stuff can be a lot more difficult to scale up when you're buying a few of those type of assets. So that's something to be aware of as well. Um, but yeah, to answer your initial question, what I specifically focused on, it was never necessarily like, once again, keeping things simple, very bread and butter strategies, and what types of deals are very profitable, what types of deals can make the, the return that I'm looking for. And that also on the flip side, don't have a huge amount of headache, right? Because there's ways to drive returns by taking on more headaches, by taking on like, you know, E-class, F-class, D-class properties that are just in complete nightmare war zones. Sure, those can make some money, but it's kind of the balance of the two. So ideally, really, I think we should all be looking for, I think everyone is looking for, if you can find just nice, stable, easy, cookie cutter, multifamily rentals that generate a high yield in a decent area, you're going to do those deals all day long. But the thing is, is that sometimes it's hard to hit the criteria of a return that you need. And that's where, that's where we start getting a little bit more creative. And that's where you niche down a little bit. Uh, but fortunately, so far through my investing career, the the, the standard um, rentals have generated a good yield, a good enough yield that I'm excited about it. And then in addition with real estate, we're working with such large assets that there is always such a large room to find extra equity from easy things like just negotiating deals well, being there at the right time at the right place, as well as being able to do strategic renovations to increase the value. So I'm curious, Dylan, because it sounds like you move around your investing strategy based on where you can get returns that meet your criteria. What kind of criteria is it? And not specifically the number, but like what kind of ratios, what kind of metrics are you kind of tracking and what makes a deal a good deal for you? Currently, I really like to track initially from just like rule of thumb kind of metrics. 
And then obviously you'll go down deeper as you start picking apart, analyzing good deals or things that look interesting. So, so even like right now, I'm kind of looking at like uh, price per unit uh, for, for a multifamily property, just to quickly, you know, ping, okay, does this start looking like it makes sense? And obviously that changes a lot. If you're looking at like a two bedroom unit versus like bachelor units, you know, I like to try to calculate uh, or at least kind of figure out what an internal rate of return would be on that property. Because really at the end of the day, and a lot of people miss this starting out. There, there are a lot of people getting into the game right now as a real estate investor where they don't really educate themselves on what fundamental investing actually is, or they don't really like to think about investing. And so at the end of the day, things like internal rate of return, super important because if I can deploy, if I'm going to deploy that capital in real estate and, and go through all the headaches and, you know, be fixing something up or doing all these things, I want to make sure that outperforms all the other opportunities of my money, right? So um, whether or not it's uh, private lending, which is very common right now, very popular, you know, you're looking at an eight to 15% return on private lending. It's like my, my real estate holding the internal rate of return should be able to beat that should, should easily be able to beat that for, for the active management side of things. Right. When you're looking at stocks, you're looking at like a four to 7% return. And so once again, that's hundred percent passive and you know that you can set up a lot and do other cool things with that too. So internal rate of returns a really big one. Yeah. Cap rate. I don't look at as much. I'm familiar with cap rate and I'm aware of running it, but um, the thing is it can be manipulated so much and changed so much. And uh, you know, people, when they run their pro formas, they forget to put out management expenses. They forget to put out uh, or they can play around with uh, cap X and op X and those things can change so drastically, even property management, right? A lot of these bigger buildings where somebody has a tenant that's maybe doing a favor and doing some with some work, or they have a, a live-in property manager or something like that. It completely changes the numbers. And so I find those metrics are very important. They're very good. I run them internally with my own deals and I kind of know what I like to see and I know what numbers I typically um, substitute in. So yeah, I, I do have like kind of things I go off of, but I find they'll change around and that's where, you know, deal analysis becomes a bit of a science and a bit of an art, right? The art is like, how you internally evaluate deals and look at things, right? The science is like, yeah, there's a science. There are things that are worth a certain amount. So it's blending the two, I think is very important. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. The IRR, I know a lot of investors don't really look at it, but generally speaking, if investors are burr investors and you're pulling out the majority of your cash, your IRR is going to be incredibly high, right? So it is something for investors to look into. I think it becomes more useful in the context of, of very large multifamily apartment buildings because that's exactly like where do you want to put your capital in a large apartment building, private equity, or some other like alternative uh, investment. What was I going to say? If I can think? interject, sorry, even because even with the IRR, right? It's like I kind of calculate that and I run that with return on equity as well. So while I'm burring, if I do have a lot of equity still in the building, I'm not going to make much of a return from renting it out. Then yeah. I might as well just flip the building and sell it. But yeah, you're you're 100% right. Um, you know, it's depending on how you want to deploy these metrics. But I think at the end of the day, being a, a real estate entrepreneur, and that's the business side of things where you're making more of an active return. And then there's the passive side of things. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of put maybe a little bit more emphasis on the investment side of things, the passive side of things, because mm-hmm. I am looking, my financial goals are to build up a portfolio of, of real estate, like an investment portfolio. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. I'd argue in, in today's market where you don't necessarily know where future after repair values will be. I think focusing IRR on the buy makes a lot more sense than it did maybe like two, three years ago, where you'd be a lot more confident that you'd be able to pull out your capital, at which point I agree also like the Burr IRR, it's completely skewed, right? So how has your investment strategy then changed? Because I, I know you, there was kind of a couple of different milestones for yourself. You built up your portfolio. I believe you left your day job a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, memory holds, right? How did things kind of change from there? 
Yeah, things have kind of changed. It's just, um, I think the biggest way things have changed is that it's become harder to really make those longer term type goals. I think when you're starting out, it's really easy to get excited about like one other little deal that's that's very close on the horizon. And then also too, when you're trying to reach that point of financial independence or when you're trying to reach those initial financial goals, it can be very easy, right? Like I think somebody just getting in the game it's a super exciting goal to be like, Hey, if I can make an extra thousand dollars a month, right. That's super exciting goal. And I remember even when I was starting out, I was like, if I can make an extra $4,000 a month. That was a really big kind of goal and milestone for me because I was thinking, okay, $4,000 per month that basically replaces a job, right? That's a thousand dollars every week. Like that's a really cool number to hit. Right. And, and those goals can be very exciting and very motivating. And so I think that's been the biggest challenge and the biggest change is that one, as your goals get bigger, you have to forecast way further out and things become, you know, I heard a quote about entrepreneurship that successful entrepreneurs have to be able to do things that don't make any money for a long time with the expectation of making a lot of money later on. And I think that's very true. So, you know, coming to grip with that fact and getting used to that has been one thing. And then the other big change is that over the past like two, three years, especially the market's been so, so volatile. So things have had to change a lot. A lot of people have changed their ideologies, their mindsets towards investing in things they're doing. I don't think I've necessarily changed my macro view too much of trying to find good investments and as well as trying to find opportunities where I can increase the value or, you know, negotiate a good deal and, you know, buy something at a discount. I think those have been timeless, but it's just in terms of being able to confidently forecast or just being able to chip away and do like one thing. I think that's been the big challenge lately. So obviously when you were getting started investing, um, single family house, 215K London, Ontario, not going to get that anymore. You sold it for 700. How has your view of the market changed? How has your investing changed with the current times? Because I feel like a lot of people who invested 10 years ago, they look at prices now and they don't want to pull the trigger on, on any deal because they were able to get these assets at one third of the price a while back ago. Um, has that had any impact on you psychologically or have you just going business as usual? Definitely. It's had an impact on me psychologically. And I think, I think most people, you know, it, it has kind of hit them or they've realized it a bit, especially when you look at deals that you said no to, you know, like five years ago, three years ago. And you're like, oh man, that would have, or you see something you said no to, and you see it get posted on the market and you're like, I like double the price that you could have almost had it for. So that's been interesting. But, um, I think that's the million dollar question, right? Is that uh, there was a great quote I heard recently from the the famous investor, uh, Stanley Drunken Miller. And he talked about how the problem a lot of people make with investing is they ask themselves the question, is this asset going to go up or is it going to go down? And the problem is, is that that's almost impossible to predict. Nobody has a crystal ball. You know, when COVID first hit, everyone thought prices were going to go down, boom, they go up. All these things like that have happened. So the real question you want to ask yourself is, are these assets expensive right now or cheap right now, given the historical context. And when you ask that question, it gives you a little bit more clarity. So for example, um, about a year ago, when interest rates were super, super low, and they were pinned low, and the Bank of Canada was saying, hey, we're going to keep rates low till 2023. Then there was a bit of an argument that real estate was actually a bit more of a fair market value, or it was actually kind of cheap relative to your payments, right? Because a lot of people with real estate are buying the payments, they're not buying the asset. Obviously, this changes with larger multifamily, but uh, you know, with single family houses, people buy the payment. Now we're at a really interesting inflection point where I don't think real estate's maybe fully adjusted yet. We're seeing this in the market. We're seeing a bit of a softening. We're seeing um, you know buyers waiting on the side where the, the prices have been elevated previously from low rates. And now we're seeing rates adjust and rates come up. So now when you're looking at the payment on real estate, 
it does seem like it is a little bit expensive and it does seem like, you know, the assets are expensive. So it looks like they are coming down. Now, the thing is, is that when you're analyzing deals with that mindset, now that gives you an idea of like, okay, well, what is actually a fair price for this asset? What will we actually have to pay? And that's where continuing to be active in this climate, you just have to be really aggressive with understanding what value you're willing to pay and finding those deals and making those deals happen, right? And, you know, as things have started shifting, it's maybe harder to find those opportunities and have those come up. But I think that's where things are headed with the price. And in addition, with the multifamilies, right, or with burn investing, you are seeing rents go up quite a bit. I was reading on a bunch of statistics, like, you know, there's a 10% rent increase year over year in many of the Ontario markets. Um, there's a website, Looper, that has it for many jurisdictions. You kind of see rent increase and just it's just peaking up like crazy. So, you know, on one hand, the prices are high, but the rent's also increasing. So it'll be interesting. Once again, as I said earlier, the volatility right now is kind of the scary part in the market. So you have to be very aware and paying a lot of attention and, you know, you want to buy safe. But um, but yeah, I guess that's that's just what's changed it. Just having to really focus on the volatility and maybe, you know, run numbers very cautiously on deals. That's actually really, that was really good. Well said, I think. Um, I think you're right that there's it's ultimately multiple variables, right? Um, but if I'm right in interpreting what you're saying, you're saying um, housing prices essentially have more room to come down to properly reflect the increase in interest rates that we've seen, right? So it hasn't been a one-to-one where interest rates went up and housing prices came down to keep it proportional. Instead, you're seeing interest rates go up. Example, I know this is not the right way to look at it, but 1% up, and then you're seeing like housing prices come down 5% when maybe it should be 10%. Right. And so you're kind of dealing with that lag in the market right now. Um, but I also think it's uh, very true that rents are going up and half of the battle is um, you, you might not necessarily need a 10% drop if rents go up enough, right? Like 5% might be the right number. So how are you, uh, how are you like taking off? Uh, are you making offers in this market? Like what are you kind of, what's your current strategy looking like? I actually haven't made too many offers in the past little bit right now. I'm really cleaning up my portfolio as well as making sure I have lots of liquidity, over the past year, I've sold off actually about half of my portfolio. Um, so sitting with some good cash, some good gunpowder there, and then just structuring my financing well. So lately, I've been doing a lot of uh, HELOCs as opposed to full cash out refinances. That's simply just because I haven't had other attractive assets that I've wanted to deploy that capital into. So you know, setting up lots of HELOCs to the ability that when I do see opportunities or when I do see something I want to jump on, then boom, I can go right for it. And and that's even the thing right now. I'm kind of thinking, you know whether or not um, I want to start focusing on, on just kind of getting more volume, buying a lot of small deals, which could be great too, or if there's like some large deals that are available as well to jump on something like that. So, yeah. Are you looking right now off the market? So I know that you were early pioneer, at least in Canadian wholesaling. Yeah, uh, Now it's that. become much more popular. <laughs> are you still door knocking? Uh, what strategies are you doing to try to get these deals? Yeah, so I still have uh, I still have some bird dogs running around for me, but I'm uh, not really hitting the guns too hard right now. Haven't deployed a lot of capital to really digging um, up some deals, but I think that opportunity is just starting to kind of present itself in terms of starting to really cultivate that lead, building up your your list, and really starting to contact back prior leads and things like that, and see if there's opportunities that could be dug back up. So. I've had a bit on my plates um, in terms of once again, just getting the portfolio all settled, tons of turnovers, tons of sales, you know, it's actually, it's been interesting. I've just reached an inflection point the past six months. It was like every month there was a bunch of things that had to be finalized, a bunch of things turning over and uh, you know, which is, which has been almost the past like decade really for 
anyone who's been super active. But yeah, so now I'm just rolling into a period where things are starting to stabilize quite a bit. I actually even just hired on a separate property management company that's going to be managing all my rentals. So that's going to be a lot better. Um, the insourcing can obviously be headaches. Um, so yeah, I think uh, very shortly, I will be starting to look more for opportunities and be a bit more active. But um, but currently, I'm just kind of doing some of the easy strategies and just kind of seeing what comes up. Nice, nice. Love it. Awesome, Dylan. So at this point in the podcast, we usually like to ask our guests two questions. So the first question is, where do you see yourself five years from now? Awesome. Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, I want to give some value to any beginning listeners, some of the models I use to kind of like analyze these. So, uh, you know, when it comes to like five-year goals, um, I typically break my goals down into three key areas. So I have health and hobbies. I kind of break them together because, you know, let's say you're like wanting to get into running. That's a hobby, but it's also health-related relationships and then money as well. And so um, with the relationship one, I find you can take that very day by day, but sometimes it does pay dividends to set an intent, right? So when I when I met with Matt McKeever, I had actually set the intent of like, I got to network with some real estate investors. And, and actually recently I got affiliated with uh, Corey McKinnon and the Infinite Results Real Estate Coaching Group uh, that my is a, a group of as well. And so even that one, like coming through COVID, there was so much social entropy. Like if you didn't actively cultivate your social circle during COVID, I found a lot of things fell apart. So that was like a big relationship goal at the time. And so, you know, right now though, I'm taking that kind of stuff day by day, just enjoying the process. The health and fitness stuff, that's typically uh, goals that I will set like quarterly or yearly. And so, you know, because every quarter you might want to, this quarter, I want to focus on getting this, you know, I maybe want to focus on losing weight or maybe want to focus on gaining muscle or maybe playing golf. Like, so right now I've been playing a bit more golf, but for five years, I feel really satisfied with the relationship and the health areas of my life. So I'm, I'm super excited by that. And to answer your question, there is really the, the money and the business. That's why we're all here on this podcast. And so, yeah, so I guess kind of ambitiously, here's kind of my ambitious goals. You know, um, I'll throw them out there. We'll see where I'm at five years from now. Anyone re-listening to this? So I'd really like to hit, I think kind of the first one is I'd like to get to $10 million of real estate owned. So $10 million of assets in real estate, like kind of like the total gross value. Um, I'd like to hit that kind of within the five years. And then beyond that, and kind of the big milestones I'd really just like to hit is $10 million net worth. So like equity in the properties, assets, things like that. And then around 50K a month recurring revenue. And I feel like those are the two big goals. Um, most people have cash flow goals, passive income goals. I call it recurring revenue now because there's no such thing as passive income eventually. Like it always, you always have to get back and do something. So the recurring revenue goal, which is fun, that's lifestyle that does make you feel really good. I've spoken to some absolute ballers, you know, past the 10 million mark, and they're funny. They're like 50K a month. They're like, I'm spending 50K a month. Like, what do you mean? All right. Because they're constantly reinvesting. So it is nice to have that recurring revenue. And then, um, yeah, I think hitting 10 million would be cool. There's there's a great book by Felix Dennis, um, How to Get Rich. He's also written The Narrow Road as well. Fantastic book. And uh, he kind of talks about like past 10K is when you start to be into like the rich territory, right? And I guess, I don't know, with inflation now, maybe not. Maybe that's still like, but I think it's a cool... I feel like a lot of the things I want to do in life, I'm not a very materialistic person. I like experiences and I feel like you can do quite a bit um, at that point of wealth. Yeah. Even with material 50 K a month, you can do, uh, you can still do quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. I, I think what a lot of people just don't like a, a very simple way to look at it is if you have $10 million in assets and management, that's assume like $8, $8 million in mortgage debt, right? Like probably lower, but let's just assume 8 million. Um, that just a mortgage pay down alone is $240,000 a year. If you assume 3% mortgage pay down, which is about, what is that? Like 20 grand or something like that a month. And like net, like kind of like net worth build up. So I think that's like, man, I think your goals are, are pretty well um, aligned. 
curious to see how you do the 10 million assets under management and 10 million net worth. I think that, that's going to be pretty crazy to kind of hit, but. The assets under management will hit first probably. And I'm just hoping the net worth gets there. And that's the truck. Like if you're net, if you're trying to get to a million dollars net worth, that's pretty, okay. hundred thousand dollars net worth, right? You can think about how you can do that in terms of years and savings. Once you get to a million, you can kind of maybe think about how to do that. To get to 10 million, you have to start changing your mindset, right? Like you need to build businesses. You need these productive assets. And then like, you know, I'm sure we all follow guys out there in in the sphere that are, you know, at the $100 million mark. And like, I don't know, and maybe we'll see if I get to that ambition level. But, uh, you know, like 100 million, like that completely changes. Some of these guys like Grant Cardone, the, the billion, you know, level, like the mindset you have to have to make those goals and how to get there, like... It's crazy. That's very true. I think, I think, you know, from the 1 million to get to 10 million, I think it's a completely different journey. So yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Second question um, for new investors starting off in today's market, what's the main risk that you see for them? Right now. And I guess almost at any time going forward, the the two biggest risks are the costs go up, fixed costs go up. So your, your cost of debt, your cost of materials, your cost of utility, your cost of labor, things like that going up, and then the cost of assets going down. And so I think most immediately right now, with all the inflation scares, I think the biggest thing is uh, the worry that costs are going up because that's been hitting and it's, been, it's eroding people's profit. Now, it does seem like over the past you know three months that prices have been going down too. So we're kind of reaching a problem point, right? Where both of those fears are coming to fruition. And I think that's what's causing a bit of the fear in the market right now. Uh, those two risks hitting. And so I think there's a bit of a consensus right now. I think the general feeling, the general milieu amongst investors is that there's going to be a recession coming in, you know, let's say 2023. I'm not here making predictions, but I'm just saying that's maybe the fear because of those two triggers. And so that's the big thing to be careful for. If we do see a recession, the way to prevent that and the way to kind of get around that big risk is once again, just sticking to the fundamentals, just making sure your portfolio is nice and cleaned up, making sure you do have liquidity or multiple exit strategies, ways to get out of there. And that's to avoid you know, the risk, that's to avoid getting spanked and having to you know, sell assets or being in a point where you don't have any money or you know, potentially even declare bankruptcy if something gets bad enough. But the other risk is after a recession, if we kind of reach a point where there's a bit of stagflation, where inflation is, uh, is still running, the cost of materials and all those those fixed costs kind of continue to stay high or go up a little bit. And if there's not a lot of employment, uh, GDP is really low and asset prices stay lower. So I guess at the end of the day, you know, we're all smart people. And I think a lot of us can avoid getting hurt and getting bankrupt or getting slapped really hard. But the, the thing we're all trying to figure out is what's the opportunity? How can we actually thrive or profit in these areas, right? And so I think the recession one is very obvious. It's just once again, being in a good position, being nimble, being fast, building up skills, all the things like that. That's the really thing that I'm kind of scared about maybe, or trying to position myself strategically for is potentially out of a recession. If we do have a sustained period of kind of flat or sideways growth. And that once again is where it's really about being active, building the business, building up your skills, being smart and, and, you know, building things holistically and, and not being too risky, not being a massive speculator, you know, not doing poor deals or, or not being very emotional with things. And so, so yeah, I hope, I hope that kind of makes sense to try to bottle up all my thoughts about about this crazy uncertain future. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was uh, definitely well said. A lot of good points made there. I think you're absolutely right. One way to get around that, like looking more into the business side of things, when I was looking at purchasing a business, a lot of these private equity firms, they wouldn't touch anything that doesn't cash flow on day one. Right. And I know a lot of investors preach cash flow, but that doesn't necessarily mean they purchase an asset that cash flows on day one. 
right? They might be negative a thousand, two thousand dollars until they turn over tenants, and then we'll cash flow six months, seven months, eight months down the line. But um, it's not always reliable because there's risk to that. If you can't get the tenants out, you're bleeding money. If the asset value is going down, that's another thing. It's important to look at things from a long-term perspective now more than ever, right? Like five-year, six-year, seven-year projection, not a quick per one-year projection. Like that's a risky point of view if that's how you're underwriting deals. So like, I definitely appreciate that exercise with being a bit more conservative with your numbers and with your thought process and maybe change your mindset of being a uh, uh, more long-term. But anyway, Dylan, you're always a book of knowledge. Speaking about books, you read like a thousand a day. I don't even know how you do it. You've been a huge inspiration to myself, Mayu, and a lot of the other investors that got started in real estate over the past two to three years. You're, you're really the pioneer of uh, one of those young investors who did it, who was able to retire early, grow a, a massive portfolio. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you, how could they do so? Thanks for the kind words. And I, I love watching the podcast. You guys have one of the few podcasts that actually is like, you know, giving practical tips, practical knowledge. So it's awesome. You know, I don't listen to all the real estate podcasts out there, but your guys, I do for sure. So anyways, yeah, if anyone wants to follow me, um, you know, I'm easy to get a hold of just my name, Dylan McLaughlin on socials, Facebook, Instagram, anything like that. So feel free to shoot me a DM and yeah, get in touch. Awesome. All of the links to Dylan's socials will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoy this episode, like subscribe, share it with a friend, keeps us going, uh, helps bring great guests like Dylan out. And uh, it keeps us motivated because as you might've noticed, you might've missed an episode a, a week. Not enough reviews coming in guys. <laughs> Until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care all.